Well, thanks, Bruce and Sue. Take your Bible, please, and open to the New Testament, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to read uh, verses 5 through 8 out of Romans chapter 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Tonight we're returning to our study here in the book of Romans and to a very wonderful uh, portion of scripture uh, that we have been studying for a while now. And we've seen that this study in the first part here of uh, chapter 8, the first four verses, has given us great assurance that those of us who are in Christ, that we will never face judgment or condemnation because Jesus has paid the penalty that we deserve on the cross. And if we believe upon Christ, repenting of our sin, trusting in his work and his shed blood, then the Holy Spirit who regenerates us gives us new life and sets us free from the law of sin and death. And in verse 4, Paul describes those who have been justified by faith as they do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And as I told you, the person of the Holy Spirit really is on display here in chapter 8, mentioned only once in the preceding seven chapters. He's mentioned nearly 20 times here in chapter 8. And it's the person of the Holy Spirit that takes us from the realm of no condemnation to new life in Christ. And we looked at uh, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in some detail last time we were together, uh, last Lord's Day. But the question that we need to start out by asking tonight as we come to this portion of Scripture is, how do you know if someone's a genuine believer? How do you know John MacArthur has a book entitled Faith Works, and in that book, uh, MacArthur tells about reading another book, uh, which uh, told about a pastor, quote-unquote, a pastor who had been sent to prison for robbing 14 banks to finance his encounter with prostitutes. And the author of the book that MacArthur was uh, reading was fully convinced that the pastor who had gone to prison for robbing 14 banks to finance his uh, encounters with the prostitutes was a true Christian. And so that other author wrote his book to explore how such a thing could be possible. I'll give you a little hint. It can't be. (laughs) All right. In case you're in suspense. MacArthur writes this, call me old-fashioned, but I think it's fair to raise the question whether someone who regularly robs banks to pay for illicit sex is truly saved. Man, it's a great observation and amazingly a controversial statement amongst some so-called believers uh, because there are many people, including this guy who wrote that book, would have said that this guy is saved, but he's just acting as a carnal Christian. So the question is, how do you know someone's genuinely saved? Because I've told you repeatedly in our study, the Bible's clear that true salvation is much more than just a forensic declaration. It's much more than a, a legal issue. True salvation is God imparting new life into the person who was once dead in their trespasses and sins. And this new life that God gives through the Holy Spirit always manifests itself in a changed life. The new life that God gives through the person of the Holy Spirit always manifests itself in a changed life, a transformed behavior. It's wrong to think that someone can, quote-unquote, accept Jesus as Savior but not yield to him as their Lord. It's a mistake to assume that everybody who professes Jesus as Lord, especially those who serve him in some kind of capacity, are really all going to heaven. Because it's Jesus himself who makes it clear that it's only those who obey him that can, be, can, be, uh, can have an expectation of being welcomed into heaven. That's what he says in Matthew seven twenty one through 27. So again, the new life that Christ offers to people, the new life that God gives uh, to people through Christ, always manifests itself in a changed life, a changed behavior. Now, that's not to say that those who are genuinely born again, uh, truly born again, can't fall into gross sin, but it is to say this, and listen very carefully. Someone who has been born again will not live a life complicit 
in sin. They, they won't live a life that is completely dominated by sin. Now, obviously, there is a, a growth in, in godliness, and that growth in godliness is a process that happens over a period of time. But that growth is always there for those who are genuine believers in, in Christ. Uh, one of you has got a key in your pocket. So just stop and make sure it's not your car. There we go. It was Volker's car. <laughs> The one thing about preaching from this pulpit is there is a lot of noise always, everywhere. Sirens, horns in the parking lot, motorcycles. My goodness. If you're a genuine Christian, you manifest a change in life. Again, it's not to say that those who are born again can't fall into gross sin, But it is to say they cannot live complacently in sin. Right? Again, obviously growth in Christ is is a process. It's a lifelong process. But there's a pattern of change. There's a pattern of growth of those who have been born again genuinely by the person of the Holy Spirit. And this portion of Scripture sets before us what that looks like. Again, Romans 8 and 4 says that those who are in this no condemnation category at the top of the chapter... Do not walk, Romans 8, 4, they do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So we come to this portion of Scripture again for a second time, and it's contrasting us, for us, uh, the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian. The differences in the contrast between those who are according to the flesh and those who are according to the Spirit. And I pointed out last time, I pointed out this morning, uh, last time we were together, I said the Bible only knows two categories of men. There's those who are saved and those who are not saved. That's it. Those who are saved and those who are not saved. And, and again, regarding those who are not saved, the non-Christian, there are certain characteristics of their nature uh, that is true about them. And last time we looked into them uh, very briefly, or maybe a little bit um, uh, at length, but five characteristics of the unsaved a person, five characteristics of the nature of the non-saved individual, the non-Christian. I just want to review that very quickly. The first thing that is true, according to the text here, about the non-Christian is the non-Christian sets his mind on the things of the flesh, verse 5. Verse 5, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Again, the non-Christian, the one who is living according to the flesh, lives according to their sinful nature. They live under the power, under the dominion, under the authority of their fallen human nature. Their lives are habitually dominated by sin. The non-Christian sets his mind on the things, his mind on the things of the flesh, meaning that he willingly pursues and devotes his life to uh, his thoughts, his affections uh, are, are are the things of the flesh. And again, the things of the flesh are not just sensual sins, but they're really anything and everything apart from God. That's really the issue. Those who are according to the flesh have no desire for the Spirit and no desire for the things of God. Those of the flesh love this world. And that's a problem because the Bible says in 1 John 2 and 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. So the first thing that's true about the non-Christian, they set their minds on the thing of the flesh. The second thing Paul tells us about the non-Christian is that the non-Christian is spiritually dead, verse 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death. Now, again, you'll note, and I think it's true, whichever version you have in front of you, the text does not say the mind set on the flesh leads to death or the mind of the sinful man or the carnal man leads to death. What it does say is this, and I think it's across all the versions, the mind set on the flesh is death, is death. Those who are according to the flesh, who set their minds on the things of the flesh, are dead spiritually is what he's saying. They are unresponsive to God, to the things of God, as a corpse would be. Those who are according to the flesh, who set their minds on the things of the flesh, live as if God does not exist. They live their entire life outside the life of God. They're alienated and separated apart from God in every aspect of their life. Uh, Alive physically, but yet dead spiritually. Sin has such a dominating factor over those who are according to the flesh 
that they live for those things that are ungodly. They live for those things that are unholy. Those things that always lead to misery and death and judgment. The third thing that Paul says is true about the non-Christian is the non-Christian is hostile towards God, verse 7. Because the mindset in the flesh or the sinful man's mind, the carnal man, is hostile towards God or is at enmity against God, depending on your version. So being dead to the things of God, the non-Christian hates God. He hates the God of Revelation. He hates the God of the, uh, of the Bible. Now, the non-Christians, religious, make no mistake about that because everybody in this world is religious. Every, everybody is born a worshiper because man was created to worship. But a man who is in sin has, perverted, uh, has a perverted and distorted mind and he either worships himself or he worships a little g-god of his own creation because he has rejected the true and the living God. And sinful man, fallen man, in every essence is an idolater. Every uh, fallen individual is an idolater. They've broken the first commandment and they worship and serve, again, another little g-god instead of the true and the living God. And while the non-Christian may boast of his religion and his religious efforts, the non-Christian hates the way of salvation found only through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because the non-Christian hates Christ and the non-Christian hates the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is an offense to him. People do not want to hear that they are lost in need of a Savior. They don't want that message. They don't want a message about God, the Father, sending His Son into the world to die as a substitute, a bloody death upon Calvary's cross, because somehow in their fallen mind they think that's cosmic child abuse. You've heard people say that. They reject the truth. They hate the gospel. They hate Christ. It's offensive to the fallen man's mind, again, to think that he needs a Savior. Because the fallen man thinks that he's basically what? Good. They're basically good. They don't need anything. They don't need anyone. Why are men outside of the truth? Why are men, so many people, not repentant and place their faith in Christ? Because they see no need of Christ. They think they're good. Good enough. If I do more good things than bad things, right? You've heard that people say that all the time. They don't see their need of Christ. They believe that they can set themselves right by God or before God by their own actions, by their own deeds. Therefore, they hate the gospel. They reject the gospel. They hate the person of Christ. And again, they hate you when you come and tell them of their need of Christ. And they especially hate you when you come and tell them that their religious efforts are of no avail. Right? They're, they're all in vain. They hate the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the revelation of God that says there's salvation in no other name except that of Jesus Christ. Well, what about and what about and what about? Well, the Bible says there's salvation in no other name under heaven given among men by which we might be saved except the person of Jesus Christ. An exclusive claim because it's truth. And the claim that Christ has to that designation as the Savior makes all other ways false ways of salvation. Those who are according to the flesh, those who set their minds on the things of the flesh, those whose minds, again, verse 6, are death, are hostile to God. Again, they hate God. They oppose His way. They oppose His way of making souls right uh, before Him. They're opposed to God's way of salvation. And that's why they're trying to find every other way of salvation that they can think of or that somebody can tell them. The fourth thing that Paul says here uh, that is true about the non-Christian is that he will not... And he cannot subject himself to the law of God, verse 7. Because the mindset in the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So again, the non-Christian is the man who sets his mind into the things of flesh. He's dead spiritually. He's at war with God. He will not and cannot submit himself to God nor to anything that God says. Because the non-Christian is a rebel. The non-Christian is a child of disobedience, a child of wrath. He refuses to allow God to rule over him. He refuses to obey God's law, which is holy, just, and good, because he's not even able to do so. That's a fact. Now, as I pointed out last time, that's what's known in the theological world as the doctrine of inability. The mindset in the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. It's the doctrine of total inability. However, I also pointed out the fact that the sinner's inability to obey God doesn't nullify his duty to do so. 
And that's crucial for us to understand. God is God. He's in charge. You're not. And he is the Lord. And every knee will bow. And every man, woman, and child must give him absolute allegiance and obey him. God demands perfect obedience. But again, sin has so negatively affected the non-Christian's ability to do so, he cannot obey God. He will not obey God. Again, that doesn't loose the sinner from his responsibility to obey God. It's the sinner's own fault for his condition. It's the sinner's own fault. It's the sinner's own sin that has made him impotent to obey God or without power to obey God. It's the sinner's own sin that has uh, disabled him from yielding himself to the Most High. It's the sinner's own sin, his own nature, that is so corrupt that he uh, is not willing or able to obey God or to obey Christ. Yet the sinner is still obligated. The sinner is still obligated to obey God. The guilt for not doing so belongs to the sinner and the sinner alone. He can't plead or she can't plead. Uh, I'm not responsible. Uh, they can't plead inability because they, have their own, they own their defect. That's, it belongs to them because of their own sin. Because moral inability is not natural. Uh, the sinner is responsible. Uh, the sinner is guilty before God, and the sinner is going to be justly punished for their rebellion uh, um, because of their, their sin and their, hateful, uh, their hate of, of the truth. The fifth thing that Paul says about the non-Christian is the non-Christian, verse 8, can't please God. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, right? Those who are according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. They're dead towards God. They're at war with God. They cannot and will not subject themselves to the God's law, to his perfect law. Uh, therefore, what they were created to do, which all men were created to please God, that's the very thing they can't do. It's the very thing they won't do. All of God's creation was, was created to praise him, to, to worship him, to adore him, to the, give him praise for the glory of his grace. And those who, according to the flesh, have forfeited their reason for existence. So that's the picture of the unsaved man. And that's the picture, again, of all of us. Uh, before God interceded in our lives, dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience, living in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Ephesians 2. Now what I want to do tonight is I want to look at the other side. That's what we did last time. I want to look at the other side, the, the character of those who are saved. Again, back to verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So here's a description, and here's a picture of a Christian, a true believer. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires, is what it says in the NIV. So the non-Christian, again, lives according to the flesh, and he's under the power and dominion of his flesh. The contrast here is that the Christian is the one who now lives accordance with the Spirit. He lives in accordance with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Christian is the one who's now dominated by God, by the Spirit of God, by the person of the Holy Spirit. He's under his power. He's under his dominion. And the whole bent, if you will, of the believer's life is influenced by the Spirit of God because the Christian, again, is controlled by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, regulated by the Holy Spirit. So the first thing that is true about the Christian is he is one who lives in accordance with the Spirit. Chapter uh, 8, verse 14 says, All who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. Right? It's the ones who are being led by the Holy Spirit, or it's the true uh, sons of God, the true followers of God. Those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And just like I did last week when I talked about uh, the non-Christian, to set your mind upon something means that you, that, that phrase, set your mind on, speaks of something that's deliberate, voluntary. Uh, it's indicative of the Christian of those who are according to the Spirit. They set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Just like we saw last time, the unregenerate man uh, sets his, things, his mind on the things of the flesh, right? And the word mind has to do with the thoughts, understandings, affections, emotions, desires, the contents, the, the patterns of the mind. Those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That is, the things of the Spirit are the things they think about. The things of the Spirit are the things they desire. The things of the Spirit, uh, they've made an object of their affection. The, they've made the things of the Spirit the attention of their pursuits. So the things of the Spirit are the devotion of the true Christian's heart. 
the things of the spirit or the things which uh, the Christian has devoted his life to, uh, again, the things that dominate his life. Now, again, the unregenerate man is possessed, his mind is possessed by the things of the flesh, while the Christian's mind is possessed by the things of the spirit. Why is that? Well, because I've told you like 114 times through this study, the Christian is somebody that has a new uh, new nature. Right? We have a new nature. We're new creations in Christ. The Christian, those who are according to the Spirit, have a new nature. And they do what? They do not walk according to the flesh, but they walk according to the Spirit. So what are these things? What are the things he's talking about here? What are the things that the, uh, of the Spirit that those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on? I'll start out with what they're not. I'll give you some negatives, and then I'll give you some positives. Right? What, what are these things not? Well, number one... The things of the Spirit are not merely religious things. They're not merely religious things. That is to say, a Christian is not somebody who's just religious because there are many people who are religious that aren't Christians. To be religious and, again, to set your mind on the things of the Spirit or the things of the Holy Spirit are, again, two different categories. And we talked about them this morning, right? The Pharisees were very what? Religious. And if you wanted to hang out with some religious guys, they're, they're a good group to hang out with because they're very religious. The only problem is they didn't know God. The only problem is they didn't know Christ. They didn't recognize the Messiah when he's standing in their very presence. Those people who are supposed to be religious and those people who are supposed to be leading people to the truth. They weren't leading the people to the truth. They're leading people further and further into the air that they believed. People who are religious, in fact, I told you uh, this morning, they very often try to eliminate God, especially the God of Revelation. We don't want the God of the Bible. We want a different God. We just came in this last hour from um, uh, a new members class, and people had an opportunity to share uh, their testimonies, and there was a repeated theme. Uh, one, we're all sinners in need of a Savior, and, and two, um, uh, everybody came from backgrounds of theological error, and the only thing that corrected their thinking was the truth whether it be charismatic backgrounds or Roman Catholic backgrounds or Pentecostal backgrounds or, or whatever, a variety of different backgrounds, and it was the truth that set them free. I think I heard that somewhere before. And again, very religious people want to reject the God of Revelation, and if you reject the God of Revelation, you're left with nothing but error because there's only truth and error in the world. There's not a middle category. And when people eliminate the God of Revelation, they insert a foreign God. Again, one they made up themselves, and more than likely an image and a likeness that is like them, an image and a likeness that they can control. Going to church a lot doesn't make you a Christian. Being baptized doesn't make you a Christian. Having a ministry doesn't make you a Christian. Doing good works, even praying to Jesus doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. Again, I did not write it. I just read it out of Matthew seven twenty one. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So the things of the Spirit are not those things that are merely religious. Number two, the things of the Spirit are not merely intellectual things. They're not merely intellectual things. That is to say that a Christian is not just somebody who holds on to a correct theological beliefs. Kind of the popular teaching of the day and a very shallow teaching of the day goes something like this. As long as you believe in Jesus, as long as you believe in Jesus, as long as you accept him into your life, whatever in the world that means, then you're a Christian, you're saved, you're in. The question needs to be asked when somebody makes that kind of statement, is it what? Is that biblical? Is that a biblical understanding of the truth? Is that what the Bible teaches about salvation? Is that what the Bible teaches what it means to be a Christian? Does the Bible teach if you believe the right stuff, then you're in, you're saved? Does the Bible teach if I confess I'm a sinner, if I say the sinner's prayer, and then I again, quote-unquote, accept Jesus into my heart, does that mean I'm saved? Is that what the Bible teaches it means to have received salvation? So when somebody comes and confesses Jesus and accepts Jesus in their heart and goes down that whole road, are they saved? It's like, well, I don't know. I don't know. A lot of people say that. popular teaching regarding what it means to be a Christian says that. But again, just saying a prayer doesn't make you saved. People in every religion pray. Even praying to Jesus doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. 
Even admitting that Jesus is God or Jesus is Lord doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. Even confessing the fact that you're a sinner doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. Again, all you have to do is look at Matthew chapter 7 and look at the words of Christ. And I say all that because I think we have to be very careful not to affirm people in their lostness. Can't assume that just because somebody gives a verbal assent to proper theology that that alone proves that they're saved and Christians. Why do I say that? Well, because James chapter 2 verse 19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So you have good theology. You understand that there's one God. James says you do well, but the demons also believe that. And they frizzo is the word, they shudder. Uh, the King James says the devil believes and they tremble. And that word frizzo means to shudder, to be struck with extreme fear, to be horrified. And I know you've heard me ask this question, but when I get to that verse, I always ask the same question Have you ever? Have you ever shaken? Have you ever shuddered? Have you ever been horrified by the reality of a holy God and you're a sinner? Has your knowledge of God, your proper theology, ever caused you to shake, to tremble, again to be struck with fear, to be horrified? If not, why not? You think that's crazy. Well, it may be crazy, but it's a good question. If not, why not? Has your theology, your proper theology, ever caused a physical response as it has for the demons? Because I might remind you that John, who was studying at length in the mornings, always referenced himself as the apostle whom Christ what? Loved. Right? The apostle whom he loved. Yeah, you go to the book of the Revelation when this same John who put his head on the breast of Jesus there at the Last Supper, when he had a vision of the exalted Christ, he said, when I saw him, I fell down at his feet like a dead man. Revelation 117. So surely, uh, being a Christian is much more than just knowing the right stuff. The demons believe the right stuff and they shudder. They're horrified. So the real question is, what's the nature of true saving faith? What does it look like? What does someone with true saving faith look like? I'll get that to in a moment, but right now we're still going through the negatives. But all that to say is that true saving faith is not just an intellectual ascent to a spiritual truth. It's something more. I mean, even a natural man, you know this, even a natural man can take up theology as a, a, sub, a subject to study. They can become an expert in it. They can have a career in it and not be saved. There are many who ascribe to theological systems in an intellectual fashion only, and they're not saved. So again, the things of the Spirit are not merely religious things. Again, a Christian is not someone who's just religious. He's not one who just goes to church, excuse me, or even prays to Jesus. The things of the Spirit are not merely intellectual things. That is to say, the Christian is not just somebody who holds to correct theological beliefs. Number three, the things of the Spirit are not merely physical things. They're not merely physical things. That, that's to say that a Christian is not one who has attained to a certain standard, a certain standard of approved conduct. A, a Christian is not just somebody who does the right thing. Uh, a Christian is not just somebody who does good deeds. Again, go back to Romans chapter 7, and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? You know, cast out demons and all this kind of stuff. And he said, I, I never knew you. Now, good deeds may be, and good deeds will be what marks the life of a true believer, but in and of themselves, they don't prove any man is a Christian. And again, what are all non-truth systems, all false religious systems pushing always? Do good works, right? Do good works. How much? Well, just a little more good works than bad works. How will I know? You won't know. But just keep doing good works, right? So you live in a system that is error and live in a system that there's no understanding of how to ever arrive at uh, anything that would be helpful to you because you're always trying to do a little bit more, right? But the things of the Spirit are not physical things. They're not just good things. There, there is a certain element within Christianity historically that taught 
as taught and still teaches, that Christians never sin. Again, that's simply not true. It is true that a Christian cannot live a lifestyle of wanton, unrepentant sin. But it is possible that the Christian can, who is trying to really pursue the things of the Spirit, can fall into sin. I don't like the term, but some people use it. The Christian could backslide. But the mark of the Christian is that if they backslide, if they fall into sin, they always front slide. Right? They always get back up. They always get back up. They always flee from their sin, and they always pursue Christ. Because that's what the true believer does. The true believer forsakes his sin, repents, and turns back to the person of Jesus Christ. Right? I think we read, do we not? Do we study Romans 7 here? Isn't that the pattern of the apostle's life? Why do I keep doing these things I don't want to do? Wretched man that I am, who set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? That's the answer, the person of Jesus Christ. Now, before the Christian came to Christ, before he was indeed redeemed, the person before Christ never pursues the things of the Spirit. Galatians 5.17 says, The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things you please. Again, there's this massive battle, this conflict. A Christian, even though he is a new creature in Christ, battles the flesh. We talked about that again in our study in Romans 7. We battle the flesh. We battle our unredeemed humanness. We battle the sin that remains in our members. But that sin no longer dominates us. The unsaved individual never battles sin. The unsaved individual doesn't care about sin because their disposition is dominated by sin, controlled by sin, under the power and the authority of sin, the dominion of sin. The believer, the true believer, battles against sin. He hates his sin. Why? Because now he's indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. The flesh sets its desire on the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. Again, there's that internal conflict that the unbeliever doesn't know. So a Christian is not someone who's attained to a certain standard of approved conduct. Uh, a Christian is not perfect, but a true Christian will battle with sin until God redeems our bodies or we go to heaven. So again, the things of the Spirit are not merely religious things. They're not merely intellectual things. The things of the Spirit are not merely physical things. So what then are they? What are these things of the Spirit that those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on? Well, obviously, they're the things of God. They are the things of God. The things of God, uh, the things to which the Holy Spirit of God always draws our attention to. And the things of the Spirit are those things which are completely hidden from the world, the fallen world, totally hidden from those who live according to the sinful nature because they have their mindset on what the nature desires, that sinful nature desires. So again, specifically, what are these things? Could you put them into some kind of group or category or list? And of course, the answer is yes. The things of the Spirit, uh, of those who walk according to the Spirit, what do they set their minds on? Number one, God. First and foremost, God. Someone who's genuinely saved, someone who's been converted. We heard it in the testimonies. This list that they didn't know I had in front of me is some of the things that these people said in the last hour that now changed their life. Because that's one of the questions I always ask is, I'm not... I want to hear your testimony, but I'm more concerned about I want to hear how God has changed your life. And and almost every one of these came up at someone's uh, conversation. First and foremost, they set their mind on God, his nature, his character, his holiness, his glory. The man who has set his mind on the things of the Spirit is consumed with the person of God. That God whom he once hated, that God of whom he was once God's enemy, he now loves. That God that he gave no concern for, he's now concerned for his glory. He's now concerned not only for his glory, but he's concerned that men everywhere would bow their knee to him, worship him, praise him. The man, the man who has his mind set on the things of the Spirit loves God. He wants to know him more. He wants to know him in a more intimate manner. A manner he longs to uh, know him better for real communion with him. And he, he would give up everything to be with him. Secondly, a man who has his mind set on the things of the Spirit is consumed with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's consumed with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially his atoning work, especially the cross and what he did on the cross. The man who has his mind set on the things of the Spirit is consumed with Christ, his relationship with him. Uh, He's consumed with who Christ is, what Christ has done on his behalf. And again, before we came to Christ, all those things didn't matter. We didn't care for God. We didn't care for Christ. Aliens, strangers, rebels, 
But now something's changed, right? Something's changed. Something now draws us upward to God, upward to Christ. Ever desiring to know God better, to worship God, to worship Christ, to serve them, to adore them, a a greater desire to obey them, to follow God's holy law, his precepts, his statutes. Third, the man who has his mind, mind, uh, his mind set on the things of the Spirit is consumed with the Bible. You know what? I heard some people say in the last hour, listen, this is going to be a shock, but they actually took up the Bible and started reading, and it changed their lives. They'd gone to quote-unquote church all their life, but that didn't make a difference. All that did was confuse them. They took up the Bible and started to read, and the fog started to clear the religious nonsense started to go away. The man who has his mind set on the things of the Spirit is consumed with the Bible, consumed with the Word of God, consumed with doctrinal truth. Because it's the Bible and the Bible alone that reveals that God reveals himself to man or through the Bible. It's where God reveals his plan of reconciliation, his plan of salvation, his plan of forgiveness of sin. Again, there was a time once in the unbeliever's life, just like in all of our lives, the Bible made no sense to him. That made no sense to us. But now we love the Word of God. Uh, we cherish the Word of God. The Word of God is the Word of life. And again, the one who has his mindset on the things of the Spirit has his heart and mind, his soul, drawn to God's Word. He loves the Word, and he detests any man who would do harm to the Word, who would misrepresent the Word, or add to it, or take away from it. Somebody said in the last hour that we sat under certain teaching for a long period of time, and those guys who called themselves pastors actually did us harm. Because they didn't take us to the truth. Took us away from the truth. Again, it's always in the Bible that displays that God displays himself on the riches of his grace and his wisdom. It's through the Bible where God displays his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the man who has his mind set on the things of the flesh, he wants to know God. He wants to understand God better. He wants to understand God's revelation so they might grow in grace and know God in Christ in a greater way. Number four, a man who has mind set on the things of the spirit is consumed with a man's soul. I heard that this last hour, too. A person who has their mind set on the Spirit is consumed with a man's soul. They're concerned about their own soul. They're concerned uh, uh, to be found right before God, but they're also concerned about the souls of everyone else around them. It's sin that has separated the soul of man from God. And the the man who has his mind set on the things of the Spirit is consumed with understanding the truth, and he's concerned with helping his fellow man understand their guilt, their shame, their weakness, their inability before God, and they are consumed uh, with uh, that knowledge of the truth and concerned uh, with their responsibility to share that truth with others around them. One, so that men might be saved, but more importantly, so that God and Christ might be worshipped and exalted properly, honored. Number five, a man who has his mind set on the things of the Spirit is consumed with salvation. He's consumed with salvation because he's consumed with the gospel. Again, he's consumed with God and God's way of saving men. Again, once he wasn't concerned with this whatsoever, uh, he wasn't concerned with, somebody said this too, it was really interesting. I mean, all these things are on my list here. Uh, They weren't interested in words like justification. They didn't even know what they meant. Sanctification. Uh, But those words are sweetened out of their ears. Once they were dead, but now they're alive. And one of the greatest words in the English language, they love that word. It's called propitiation. Propitiation. It's a word that speaks about God's anger towards sin being removed, and it's God himself that is removing that anger. God himself finally and fully forever dealing with with sin uh, uh, by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. A wonderful word. That word propitiation is what sets a man's mind free from error and brings him to the truth and places him in that category of no condemnation. Again, once blind, now the genuine believer sees. Once he didn't understand, now he understands because now he's alive in Christ. He glories in the great good news of the gospel. He glories in the name of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, God's Son sent into the world out of God's love to deal with sin, his sin. So the man that has his mindset under the Spirit glories in the gospel, rejoices in the gospel. Number six, a man who has his mindset under the things of the Spirit is consumed with holiness. He's consumed with holiness. He's concerned about his own sinfulness, and he struggles with that desire to live 
righteously before God, obediently before God, yet he sees a different member in the law of his bodies working itself out in the members of his body, always leading him downward, ever leading him his flesh, wanting to lead him more and more into sin. But then he remembers. The man who has his mind set on the things of the Spirit remembers that he's no longer a slave to sin. He's no longer a slave to sin. He's no longer a slave to sin, and sin no longer reigns in his life. For the first time ever in Christ, a person can now obey God through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And for that, the true believer rejoices. The man who has his mind set on the things of the Spirit recalls the mind to his mind the truth. He, he can recall to his mind that he's no longer a slave to sin, that he can obey sin, and that he can say no to his flesh. No to his flesh, and yes to God, yes to Christ. Again, walking obediently before them. The, mind, the man who has his mind set on the things of the Spirit is ever breaking forth in praise. He's always praising God. He's speaking forth doxology, praising God for his grace, praising God for his kindness, for his mercy, because of his great love. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen, right? As Paul says in in First uh, uh, Timothy uh, chapter 1, you, you read Paul and all of a sudden he just stops in the mid-sentence of his thought and just breaks out into doxology. That needs to be true of our life. In mid-sentence, when we're complaining, we stop, take a breath, and say, you know what, instead of complaining, I'm going to praise God now here for his salvation to me through Christ. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus in all generations forever and ever. Amen. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Just praising God, always praising God, always praising Christ. Number seven, the man who has his mind set on the things of the Spirit is consumed with eternity. He's consumed with eternity. He's looking forward to the day that he's going to be finally free from this body of death and free from sin. He's looking forward to that day that he's going to be with God physically in, in Christ in their very presence. That man who has his mind set on the things of the Spirit longs for the day that he's going to be with Christ, and he longs for the day that Christ is going to return. He longs for that day when he's going to be with Christ, when Christ shall return to Christ, or God will take him uh, to his presence through death. I mean, literally, we could go on and on. We could go on and on. The man who has his mindset on the things of the Spirit is consumed with God's people. He loves the church. I heard that the last hour, too. Didn't like the church, wanted nothing to do with the church, get saved, now I love the church. He's consumed with God's people, consumed with the fellowship of the saints. Uh, the man who has his mindset on the things of the Spirit is consumed with prayer. Heard that one, too, the last hour, communion with God. The man who has his mindset on the things of the Spirit is consumed with the things that the Holy Spirit uh, with the things of the Holy Spirit of God. It's consumed with God himself, the person of the Holy Spirit. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. But there's more, because verse 6 comes next. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is, here it is, life and peace. So the mindset on the Spirit is life. The non-Christian is dead. The life, the mindset on the flesh is life. The non-Christian is dead, spiritually dead to the things of God. Those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And those minds set on the Spirit is, and the mind that is set on the Spirit, he says, is life. It's life. That's proof. That's proof of one's profession and faith in Christ is genuine. Right? The genuine believer, the Christian, has life. They have spiritual life. At the end of Romans 4, the apostle just uh, finished proving the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. And then chapter 5 comes and he applies that doctrine. He begins to show the consequences or the result of those who believe what God has done through Christ. And listen, starting in chapter 5, verse 10, he begins to emphasize how Christ has brought us life. Romans 5.10, if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, we shall be saved through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He brings us life. So now you can answer the question that I asked a few moments ago. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does that look like? Again, is a Christian just somebody who's accepted Jesus, somebody who just uh, believes in Christ, somebody who says a, a sinner's prayer? No. The thing that makes a Christian a Christian is that person has life. 
new life, life in Christ. The fact that he is alive in Christ and that Christ is alive in him. And the argument through the remainder of chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, and now here beginning in chapter 8, the basis of assurance of salvation that a man is in Christ, alive in Christ, is that Christ is alive in him. And again, he starts to play that out. Now go back with me and let me just go through a few verses together. And you can kind of follow along with me in your Bible and you can see that. Back to to Romans chapter 5. We're looking for life. Right? Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 11. Therefore, justice through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Right? Adam's rebellion brought death, right? Adam's rebellion brought condemnation. But Jesus is going to bring life. Christ brings life. Verse 15. The free gift is not like the transgression. If by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Christ Jesus, abound to the many. Verse 16. The gift is not like that which comes through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one. Much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, listen, will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even through one act of righteousness, there resulted in justification of life to all men. For justice through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. The law came so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ brings life. About chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And I remind you that a resurrection is life from the dead. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master of him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Drop down to verse 22. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification, the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, again, we could go on and on with this one. Go over to Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you are also made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that you might bear fruit for God. Let me tell you what, dead trees don't produce fruit. It's life. Fruit is signs of life. Romans 8, 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law and sin and of death. It's the consistent testimony of the scripture that brought us, those of us who've been brought to Christ have life. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but the King James Version, I I like the way it says this in in Ephesians 2, "You, you hath he quickened, right? You hath he quickened who were past tense dead in trespasses and sins. He's brought you to life. 
You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us, what's the next word? Made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you've been saved. Again, Romans 8.3, we looked at that a few times back. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. As an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. For what the law could not do. What could the law, law do? All the law, the, all the law could do is condemn us. The law could never give us what? Life. Because nobody keeps the law. Nobody obeys the law. God brings life. He brings spiritual life to us through his Son. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering. He sent Christ into the world to give us life. 2 Peter 1.44, he's granted us this precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Again, life. Divine life. Now again, make sure you're back here in our text in Romans 8 and 5. Those according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those according to the Spirit set their, uh, according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind, verse 6, set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life. So the Christian has life, eternal life, here and now. Uh, you don't have to wait to die to have eternal life. If you're a Christian, you already have life. You have life now. And if you have life, I bet, I don't know, I bet things alive look different than things that are dead. I mean, I'm not a doctor or a physiologist, but, right? Things alive look different than things that are dead. And if you have life of Christ, you're going to look like you have life. Because you're no longer consumed with the things of the flesh. But rather you're consumed by and your will has set its mind on the things of the Holy Spirit, the things of God. So the Christian is alive from the dead and he's alive to God in Christ. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians, seated this very moment in the heavenlies with Christ, it's the doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of new birth, where that person who is dead to the things of God and capable of seeking the kingdom of God now has come to life. Again, quickened by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Christian is a man who has life, new life. He's been radically changed from who he once was. He's gone from death to life. So how is that accomplished? By, quote-unquote, making a decision for Jesus? No. Happens by the power and the mercy of God the Holy Spirit that a man comes to life. John 6 and 63, you might remember this. Jesus Christ says, It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. It's not that the flesh profits a little something. He says the flesh profits nothing. Back in chapter 3 of the book of John, John 3 and 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Again, what the law could not do, weak as it was, God did. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Again, God sent life, new life. Man only comes to new life by God. We're completely, utterly dependent upon the person of the Holy Spirit for regeneration, for new life. To be born again means to be born from above and by the power of the Holy Spirit. To be made partakers of the divine nature is not something we do. It's what God does through us in the, by the person of the Holy Spirit. And I, and I found this interesting as I was studying this week. It's like, boy, you know, we know it, but we probably passed over it. It's what Jesus says Everywhere. Everywhere. John chapter 4, verse 14, talking to the Samaritan woman. Whoever drinks the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him he come, will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. John 5 and 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and doesn't come into judgment, but he's passed out of death unto life. Truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now ends when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. John 6 and 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. 
John 6 and 50, this is the bread which came down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. John 6 and 51, I am the living bread that come down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I also give for the life of the world is my flesh. Truly, truly, verse 53, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. I mean, he just goes on and on. John 10 and 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and it abundantly. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Verse 6, the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is Life. Why? Because the Christian is no longer dead. The Christian might be weak, but the Christian always shows signs of life because the, the person of the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, now dwells within him. And a Christian is not one, again, who's just externally religious. The Christian is one who has passed from death to life. His mind is set on the things of God. He, he no longer bears fruit for death, but he bears fruit for God, because now the Christian is controlled, dominated under the power, the authority of the Holy Spirit, who's the Prince of Life. But there's still more. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life, and next word, peace. I heard that this last hour. I'm telling you what, it's almost like those people read my sermon. I heard him say, right? Am I going to get an amen from the back row? Right? Almost every one of these things I've heard them say in their testimonies. The first thing that the Christian experiences when by the mercy of God they come to life in Christ is peace. Peace with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified with, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, before God quickened us, before uh, we were made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit, dead in our trespasses and sins as rebel, rebels under the wrath of God, God's enemy hostile towards God. We weren't at peace. But once a man is born again, once he no longer stands under condemnation, once he's now a child of God, a son, a friend, he's now one who stands in peace and never again under condemnation. All that hostility, be all that hostility, all that enmity that was once there has been replaced by what? Love. It's been replaced by love. No longer is God one whom he hates, but now God is one whom he loves. The Christian is one who loves God. The one who's the Christian is one who's overwhelmed by the love of God. Again, when a man passes out of death to life, he finds himself consumed with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He finds himself constantly thinking about the fact that the barrier between himself and God that was once there has been removed. He finds himself continually thinking about the fact that he's eternally forgiven, that he's entered into a place of life, he's entered into a place with peace with God. He finds himself thinking about God's great mercy and God's great love, and he finds himself thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ, and he can't help but break out in doxology. And when he, along with the hymn writer, begins to think and say, he says, when I think that God is son not sparing, sent him to die, scarce can take it in. That on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Right? Isn't that the truth? All the passing problems and issues and things that are going on in the crazy world have nothing to do, nothing to compare with the great salvation that we have in Christ. Amen? And we are called to set our mind on the things above where God in Christ is. Our text tonight says those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh those who are according to the spirit 
Those according to the a spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the spirit, he does not belong to him. Jesus Christ comes in and completely transforms and changes our life, takes us out of the realm of condemnation and gives to us what? Life. That's how you know someone's a Christian. Not what they say, but you look to see do they have the life of the Spirit of God in them because those who belong to God, those who are genuinely saved do, they have the life of the Holy Spirit within them. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for your great testimony and encouragement to our hearts that we have life in Christ, not by anything that we do or have done or have not done, but it's all because of you, all because of your great grace, your great mercy to us. We rejoice and sing your praises. Thank you for our great day uh, of worship through your word. And may you bless your people as they leave this place. In Christ's name, amen.